Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 88, The Unconquered Restorer of the World. On the death of Claudius Gothicus, the Senate and the army had different ideas about who should rule next. The senators elevated Marcus Aurelius Claudius Quintilus, brother of the recent plague victim, to the rank of Augustus. The army, obviously, chose old sword in hand. It was blindingly obvious to all of them that the success of the empire rested on this brilliant general and they were not going to stand for anything else. Poor Quintilus had no chance at all. After just a couple of months in charge, and he was never really in charge at all, he realised he had no hope of beating the great Aurelian and having reached Aquileia, killed himself before somebody did it for him. So Aurelian was now emperor and he was even more determined than his predecessor to reunite the domains he thought were rightfully his. Now, Aurelian was, to use a word I find quite irritating, awesome. Unfortunately, there is no other word which is adequate to describe him given his achievements. Before we get to the great man, though, we need to take a look at what happened in the east after Odenathus died. As we have already heard, Odenathus was succeeded by his infant son, Verbalathus. There was no legitimacy at all for this move. Gallienus had entrusted the defence of the east to the Palmyrene, he had not entrusted the rule of this rich part of the empire to Odenathus's extended family, but the late leader's ambitious wife contrived it anyway. Zenobia finally stopped pretending that the Palmyrene-controlled realms were part of the Roman Empire. Instead, that part of the Roman Empire truly became the Palmyrene Empire. Palmyra was a desert city. It owed its existence to the presence of desert springs which allowed its inhabitants access to life-giving water. The name of the city probably meant place of palm trees, demonstrating the rarity of such lush vegetation in the barren landscape. The city had grown around its oasis and was prominent enough to be brought under Roman control in the early 1st century. It retained links with the Parthians though and soon became an important trade centre. There are reports of, that merchants travelled as far as India to sell their wares. By Odenathus's time it had become a magnificent city, a mixture of Roman style and local tastes. If Zenobia had thought harder about her bid for ultimate power, she may have realised that Palmyra was doing just fine as it was. Instead, she effectively signed its destruction order. The final break with Rome took place early in Aurelian's reign. Verbalathus was formally declared emperor. Aurelian's face did not appear on the coinage minted in the territory controlled by Zenobia, signifying a genuine break with Rome. Then, under the leadership of the general Zabdas, Zenobia's forces invaded both Egypt and part of Asia Minor, bringing many more Roman cities under her control. Zenobia arranged for the Syrian cities to declare their allegiance to her, her son and Palmyra. Despite being enthralled to her thirst for power, Zenobia was very clever and a capable woman. She might have succeeded in her ultimate aim had the Emperor of the Romans been insufficiently talented. It was just her bad luck that she happened to be around at the same time as Aurelian but the emperor had other fish to fry before he could deal with Zenobia. Having succeeded to the throne, dismissing the unfortunate Quintilus as if he didn't exist, the new emperor rushed back to the frontier and faced the Vandals, who were running around ravaging Pannonia. Aurelian was too clever for this new barbarian tribe, and he ordered that everything that could possibly be eaten was gathered up and taken to nearby cities, so the Vandals had nothing on which to subsist. The Vandal-fighting men quickly became hungry and Aurelian beat the starving barbarians easily at the following battle. Aurelian was more than just a fine soldier. He was a thinking man and won his battles as much by cunning planning and trickery as by soldierly skill. 
he allowed the Vandals to go home after their defeat on the condition they left a few thousand horsemen to join the legions. This he did again and again. Defeated German tribesmen were absorbed into the legions and became some of the best legionaries in the Roman army. As he was fighting the Vandals, Aurelian learned that the Jathungi had invaded Italy. He took his army and charged into the home province. The Jathungi, though, were a little cleverer than the Vandals and they set a trap for the legions. As the weary army set up camp for the night and settled down to sleep, the Jathungi attacked. The legions were surprised by the assault and scattered and fled. Aurelian was furious, mostly with himself. This, he thought, must never happen again. My legions, he said, will be the best Rome has ever seen and will never again be defeated while I lead them. In this, as in most things, he was as good as his word. Never again would an army led by Aurelian be defeated in battle and there would be many, many more battles. Aurelian quickly regathered his forces and chased the retreating Jathungi. This time he watched the barbarians closely and waited for his moment. His moment arrived as the barbarian fighters rested near a river. Aurelian charged his army towards the Germans, who were forced into the water, and many of them were swept away to their deaths. The tribal leaders offered peace terms, but the emperor decided they had not asked nicely enough and refused. The beaten Jathungi headed north, followed by the Roman army. At Parva, the legions attacked again and the Jathungi were savagely beaten. This time the terrified tribesmen surrendered all of their stolen treasure and begged for mercy. Aurelian let them go, but only after all of their fighting men, some 20,000, joined the legions. With more great German soldiers and a stronger army, Aurelian began to dream of reuniting his empire once and for all. Before embarking on his conquest, though, there was the little matter of entering the capital in triumph. He marched south through Italy and into Rome to be met with what? Excitement? Cheering crowds? No, he was met with a population who was not celebrating, but rioting. Aurelian was very, very cross. He had defeated two barbarian enemies and strengthened the legions, and he'd only been on the throne a few weeks. This was not what he'd expected. It seems that the riot was caused by the men at the local mint. The new emperor had noticed there was very little silver in the coins and had ordered that the silver content be raised to a consistent level. Some men at the mint had been stealing the silver, so there was even less in the coins than the emperor realised. The men were highly concerned. Aurelian had a fearsome reputation and was known to deal very harshly with corruption. They were so scared, they decided rioting was their best option. Maybe the mighty sword in hand would be overthrown and they'd get away with it. Some of the senators, especially those who had supported Quintilus, joined in and a full-scale riot was soon in progress. Aurelian called in the huge forces of the army and savagely put it down. The emperor was a long way past being simply annoyed by this treachery. He was blindly furious. He had all of the mint administrators, all of the supporting senators and anyone else important who was involved in the riots executed. Then he closed down the mint just to be on the safe side. There were a couple more things that Aurelian wanted to do before going after the Palmyrene and Gallic empires. He decided that a whole new strategy was needed to defend the empire. The border defences set up by Augustus and strengthened by Domitian before being completed by Hadrian were no longer good enough. Such was the nature of the more recent incursions, the empire could not waste troops defending a large border. It was simply not practical and spread the forces too thinly. Aurelian ordered walls to be built around all of the cities of the empire. The Romans would defend their cities, not the borders. If the Jathungi, the Vandals or the Goths or any other tribe wanted to come into the empire, then fine, they could. 
but they wouldn't be able to steal anything or sack cities as everything living or valuable would be locked behind city walls. If a city was under siege, it could hold out behind its walls until the mobile imperial army arrived to crush the besiegers. Rome itself was to have the greatest of these new walls. The emperor ordered a massive fortification to be built around the Eternal City. The magnificent Aurelian Wall, more than 19 kilometres long with 350 guard towers, was not breached for more than a century and a half and some of it still stands in Rome today. Most remarkably, no soldiers could be spared for the building task and it was built entirely by civilians. It took five years to complete. It would have taken longer, but the architects included significant portions of existing buildings into the structure. Unfortunately, despite the speed, Aurelian himself was dead before it was finished. When the wall building was well underway, Aurelian took another momentous decision. He decided the province of Dacia, sticking out on the far side of the Danube, was no longer defensible. The gold and silver mines, once so important to the empire, had no gold or silver left, and Dacia was no longer of any real value. The emperor announced to his key supporters that it would be abandoned. He gave the people plenty of time to leave, and then withdrew all of the defenders to strengthen the imperial army. In order not to lose face, he created a new province of Dacia from part of Moesia and Thrace, so he hadn't abandoned it at all, he just moved it south of the Danube. Aurelian was satisfied with his strengthening of the Middle Empire. Now it was time to reclaim the rest of it. In 271, Aurelian gathered up the whole imperial army and marched east to deal with the upstart eastern queen. The army was becoming a formidable force. A very strong leader, better training and equipment and lots of German troops combined to make the army better than it had been for many years. Aurelian paused slightly to deal out another defeat to the Goths, killing the Gothic king, and then set out, planning the downfall of Palmyra. He gave the Goths access to the abandoned Dacia, so they had a homeland, and then he had a defeated tribe between him and the more dangerous German tribes further north. Aurelian set out his plan to deal with Zenobia and the Palmyrenes. The first part of the plan he left to one of his top generals, a fleet and some legionaries were sent to Egypt under the command of a man called Marcus Aurelius Probus. Probus and his forces easily retook Egypt and threw out the Palmyrene troops. Aurelian himself led his forces into Asia Minor. His plan was to retake as many cities of the eastern provinces as he could without having to fight. He wanted to lose as few men as possible before the final battle over Palmyra. The first few cities he encountered opened their gates to him without any resistance. Aurelian's reputation for punishing troublemakers was fearsome, and the leaders of the cities decided it was best for them if they gave up quickly. Aurelian used his reputation to great effect and welcomed the cities back into the empire. The first city to offer any resistance was Tyana. The leaders thought they could hold out and then be amply rewarded by Zenobia. The city was betrayed though, and the Roman forces were soon inside. The population, especially the leaders, were terrified. The vengeful, frightening figure of old sword in hand was about to kill them all in a really nasty, bloody way. Aurelian, though, surprised them all. He emerged from his tent and announced, There will be no sacking, no reprisals and no punishment. Everyone in this city will be pardoned and welcomed back into the empire. Everyone was delighted and very relieved that this man, the scariest emperor for many years, was showing such great mercy. Aurelian's decision was brilliant. The story of the forgiveness shown to Tyana reached the other cities in the east before Aurelian got to them. Each city he arrived at threw open their gates and welcomed the Roman army in. With this strategy, he recaptured the whole of the east up to Antioch. 
the Palmyrene army was waiting for the legions at the great Syrian city. Aurelian used the same old pretend retreat trick that he had used to help Claudius defeat the Goths. At a predetermined time, the cavalry fled and were chased by the Palmyrene horsemen. As planned, the Roman cavalry turned as one and slaughtered the Palmyrenes. Zabdus ordered his army to retreat to Antioch. Soon after, during the night, the whole Palmyrene army silently abandoned the city and ran back towards Emesa. Aurelian marched into Antioch. Surely this time he was going to extract full vengeance and kill a lot of people. The population cowered in terror. The emperor, though, again pardoned everyone and the great eastern city was back under Roman control. Aurelian allowed his troops to rest among the grateful citizens of Antioch so that the soldiers were fully prepared for the final attack. A very bloody battle took place very close to the place where Valerian had been captured by the Sassanids. The Romans were victorious again. They stole the Palmyrene treasury, and there was a lot of treasure, and chased Zenobia, Zabdus and the few survivors of the battle back to Palmyra itself. A siege of the city eventually led to the collapse of the Palmyrene defence. Zenobia took a last look at her desert oasis city and then tried to run to the Sassanids. Unfortunately for the Palmyrene queen, the great king Sharpor, defeater of Valerian, was dying and the Sassanids were not interested in helping her. Aurelian's troops caught up with her and she was captured. Palmyra gave itself up. Aurelian was again very merciful. He only had the leaders of the city, including Zabdas, executed. The great Palmyrene general's head on a spike was a fine sight for the weary victorious legions, and they were also allowed a nice organised sack of the city itself. Tellingly, there is no record of what happened to Vabalathus. This just shows how unimportant he really was. Aurelian had succeeded in regaining control of the Eastern Empire in less than two years, and was given the title Restituta Orientist, the Restorer of the East. Now for the West. The army, though, had to deal with a few German incursions before moving into the Western Gallic Empire. As he was mopping up the last of the German invaders, Aurelian learned that the Palmyrans were in revolt. The local commander, a man called Marcellinus, sent word to the emperor. He, of course, was absolutely furious. He didn't like having to do the same job twice. Nope, he didn't like that at all. Aurelian, finally at the very end of his mercy reserves, and his army marched very quickly indeed and took the Palmyrene forces completely by surprise. They were very shocked when in spring 273 a massive Roman army, led by a madly furious emperor, appeared from nowhere, marched into the city and retook it without a fight. Aurelian was again very merciful towards the population. He let them all, except the leaders, live. But, and it was a very big but, he destroyed their beautiful hometown. Apart from a few religious buildings, he looted, smashed and destroyed the great oasis desert city completely. The ruins of the city are still standing in the Syrian desert today. The citizens scattered to start new lives elsewhere. Aurelian returned to Rome and planned his next moves. He had Zenobia as a prisoner and was all set for a triumph. Aurelian though decided he wanted to have one really big, really triumphant triumph, rather than two smaller ones so he thought he might as well recapture the Gallic Empire as well. The Gallic Empire had been through a couple of emperors since Posthumus. Victorinus had been killed in 271, and at the end of 273, the, man, the leader was a man called Tetricus. In 274, a revolt occurred in Belgica, and the usurper occupied the Gallic city of Trier. Tetricus defeated the rebels, but remembering that Posthumus had been killed when he didn't let his men sack a rebel city, 
the emperor agreed that his troops could carry out a small, orderly sack. An emperor sacking his own capital does not bode well for an empire. Aurelian marched towards Trier in 274. Most cities on the way put up no resistance and were quickly back under Roman control. Tetricus realised that his Rhine legions had no chance against the very well-trained and battle-hardy legions controlled by Aurelian. Tetricus offered Aurelian a deal. He lined his armies up, but before any fighting took place, he gave himself up to Aurelian. Aurelian agreed that Tetricus and his son would not be executed. As he had been in the east, Aurelian was a very merciful victor. He left most important people in place, and government carried on much as it had for the previous few years. The local administrators had had no problem adapting when the Western Empire split from Rome. They had no problem adapting when they rejoined the fold. Just like that, after Aurelian had been the top man for just four years, the Roman world was complete once more. The empire was reunited. Aurelian celebrated a truly massive triumph back in Rome. Both Zenobia and Tetricus were paraded through the streets in chains, although afterwards both were allowed to live out their lives peacefully. Tetricus was given a good job in southern Italy, and Zenobia married a wealthy Roman. The emperor himself was given the title Restitutor Orbis Invictus, the unconquered restorer of the world. What an emperor Rome now had. Everyone looked forward to many more years of heroic success. See, told you he was awesome, mighty, merciful and magnificent. Aurelian was also forward-thinking in his attitude to religion. He boasted of a special relationship with Sol Invictus, otherwise known as the Unconquered Son. Unlike the previous imperial proponent of this important cult, Elagabalus, he was tolerant of other cults, both pagan and otherwise. There are reports of him being consulted by Christians when there was a dispute over the behaviour of the Bishop of Antioch, showing that Christianity was becoming more accepted. Only two generations later, the Roman Emperor would be a Christian. Aurelian's version of monotheism was a small step in that direction. Old Sword in Hand allowed himself some time off to enjoy himself and continue sorting out the supply and value of the coinage, but after a few months he left Rome on his next mission. A few years before, as we know, the Emperor Valerian had been captured by the Sassanid King Sharpor and humiliated. Sharpor had recently died, but Aurelian was intent on having his revenge on the Sassanids. He marched his vast army east. Rome was on the up. Nothing could go wrong this time. Next time, we'll see it go very wrong. Until then, have a couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.